Good morning. Welcome to our 10 o'clock worship sermon. Uh, I'm Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. We thank you for joining us. We thank you for following along uh, with our um, services. We ask that you would subscribe, whether you're listening on Spotify, uh, PodPoint, or even following us on YouTube, that you would subscribe to the platform that you are listening to. And we're grateful that your family uh, is blessed by our teaching, and we pray that you are. Uh, This morning, through the 10 o'clock service, we are going through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, We are in chapter 8 of the confession, and we are talking about Christ the Mediator. Uh, Last week, we talked about the significance of Jesus's divine and human nature. Why is it significant? Why is it important, essential, for the mediator between God and man to be both divine and human? And we we talked about Jesus' divine nature. We talked about his human nature. Uh, and we also talked about the significance of both of those natures and why they are essential for Christ to be the perfect mediator between God and man. Uh, So if you go back last week, it was on the 13th of June. Uh, Listen to that sermon, and I hope that you uh, would be uh, blessed and that you would uh, grow in knowledge and wisdom uh, by listening. This morning, we're going to talk about the eternal generation of the Son. The phrase eternal generation is not widely used. In fact, if you're subscribing to this, you've probably never heard that phrase before. You've probably been a part of a church for years and your elders or your pastor never mentioned the phrase, the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, But it's very common in the scripture. Uh, Although the phrase eternal generation doesn't appear in the Bible, uh, the word begotten does. And Uh, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, that phrase, begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, uh, is what we mean by eternal generation, and that's what we're going to study today. Uh, But first, before we get into our study, let's read from the Confession, chapter 8, section 1. The Confession says, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and man. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, to be the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. During the middle of the 4th century, a famous controversy started in the church. This controversy was called the Arian Controversy, and this debate Uh, involved the person of Jesus Christ. It involved the origin of Jesus Christ. 
and the questions that were answered uh, during this time of the church history was the son made or is the son eternally begotten? That's what the Arian controversy was about in the middle of the fourth century. Is the son made, is the son of God a created being or is the son of God eternally begotten of the father? According to both the scripture and the Baptist confession, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is eternally begotten of the Father. He's eternally begotten. He is an uncreated being. He is an uncreated person. The phrase begottenness or the term begottenness is a major theme. A major theme in the Bible, in particular to John. The Apostle John writes about the begottenness of the Son of God a lot in his uh, literature. For instance, right at the beginning of, of his gospel, the Apostle John says in John chapter 1 verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In John chapter 1 verse 18 the Apostle says that Jesus is the only Son at the Father's side. And then in 1 John chapter 4 verse 18 the Apostle says in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Even the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about Jesus' begottenness, his uniqueness as the son of God. During his baptism, all three of those gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, claim that as Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my only beloved Son. And then again, on the top of Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three claim that God spoke from heaven and the Father said of the Son, This is my only begotten or my only beloved Son. The gospel writers love to use that term begotten or unique or only son in reference to Jesus Christ. They love to use that phrase because the term begotten describes the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. He is the only son of his father and the father has no other son except for this one. This is the only begotten son of God. This is the one that's unique. He is separate than all the other sons. For instance, those who uh, come to faith in Christ, they are adopted into God's family. We become the adopted son of God, but we're not like Jesus. 
There is something different about Jesus's begottenness, his uniqueness that separates him from everyone else. And in theology, the relationship between the Father and the Son is called eternal generation. That's the uniqueness. Jesus is the only Son of God who has eternally been generated from his Father. And this relationship, the uniqueness of the Father and the Son, this is what was on trial. This is what was under attack at the Council of Nicaea in the middle of the 4th century uh, in 325 A.D. Arius, a bishop in the church, he believed and he taught Yes, Jesus was a son of God, but Arius taught and believed that Jesus was not eternally the son of God, but that God had begotten Jesus in time, meaning Jesus is the created being. That Jesus is not eternal. He's not divine. He is a created being. That's what the controversy was about. And this Council where the Christians got together to debate this topic lasted for about six months. And at the end of those six months, the church universally agreed that the Son of God is begotten of the Father and eternity past. He is uncreated. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. And the church universally agreed that Arius and his teaching would be dismissed and excommunicated from the church. If you ever get time after this sermon, or even if you want to pause it, uh, pause it and Google the Nicene Creed. N-I-C-E-N-E. The Nicene Creed. Google and read it and look at the Christological words and descriptions that are used about Jesus. Notice that the creed says he's the only begotten son of the Father. He's eternally generated from the Father. He is not a created being. That sonship of Christ, the sonship of Jesus, how is it described? It's described by the phrase eternal generation. Eternal generation is a doctrine that teaches the Son is the true Son of the Father by virtue of being from the Father. We're familiar with the term natural generation, right? Natural generation is not the same as eternal generation, but it gives us a good idea what eternal generation is. Uh, eternal generation describes Jesus' uh, sonship from his eternal father. Natural generation describes my sonship from my father. Joseph Azera is my father. I am his son by virtue of being from him. I am begotten of my father. 
And the Bible teaches this. It teaches natural generation. The King James Version, the, 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 uh, the modern versions don't use the phrase begotten or the term begat. But the King James Version does. Uh, in Scripture, there are several genealogies, and, and as you read the genealogies in the King James Version, you'll notice the phrase begotten or begat. For instance, in Genesis chapter 5, the lineage of Adam is given. And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 6, the Scripture says, When Seth, who was the son of Adam, had lived 500 years, he begat Enish. And then in Matthew chapter 1, Another genealogy appears, and this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2 says, Abraham begot Isaac. These begats are natural generation. They happen in time. Sons are the sons of their fathers by virtue of being from their fathers. But again, Natural generation, me being of my father, isn't the same as Jesus being the son of God. There's a difference. And the term that you need to be aware of is the term homoousios. And that describes Jesus' essence being just like his father. Because Jesus is eternally generated by his Father, or of his Father, he isn't a created being. He's always existed. And that means he's always had the same exact essence and of the same substance as his Father. You and I, humans, we're generated in time. Our generation is natural. We are created beings. That's the difference. Jesus' generation is eternal. It's not done in time. So as long as the Father has existed, which the Father self-existent, He's eternal. He's everlasting. Since the Son has been generated from the Father, whatever the Father is, the Son is. Eternal generation. The Son has been eternally generated of His Father. And because His Father is eternal, everlasting, just, holy, righteous, divine in nature, eternal in nature, the Son is of the same substance. And that's the term homoousios. Now, homoousios, Latin for of the same substance, shouldn't be confused with homoousios. One little letter, that I, homoousios, changes the entire meaning of the word. Homoousios teaches that all three members of the divine trinity are uncreated, co-eternal, and of the same substance. But homoousios teaches that the Father and Son and Spirit are of similar substance. They're not equal in substance. They're not equal in essence. And that's a big difference. 
Big difference between the word same and like. Arius, the third century excommunicated heretic, he taught homoi usias. He taught that the father was like the son and the son was like the father. He taught they were not the same. But that's not how the early church viewed the relationship between the father and the son. That is not how the Bible teaches the relationship between the father and son. The Bible teaches that the father and son are the same in essence. They're co-equal in essence. They are co-equal in substance. And that's the definition that the universal church adopted. Homoousios. You can't be a Christian. I hate to break the news to you. But you can't be a Christian and deny that the Father and Son are not of the same substance. You can't be a Christian if you deny the Father and Son are of, are of different essences. You can't be a Christian if you deny the eternal generation of the Son. Because if the Son has not eternally generated from the Father, then he's naturally generated from the Father, and now you're in trouble because now you're claiming Jesus is a created being. He's not. Guys, doctrine matters. Theology matters. You can go to these churches and they, you see them on Facebook, you know, come visit our church. Our people are so loving and, and you'll be, and you'll, and you'll be taken care of and the, you'll feel so wonderful being at our church. They fall short on doctrine. Those types of churches, the road to hell is wide. And many walk that path. You, you can't be a Christian and not believe the Father and Son are not of the same substance. They're not co-equal and power and glory and eternal. They're not of the same essence. You, you can't be a Christian and deny that. So if the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are in, of equal essence, they're the same essence, they're of the same substance, how do we distinguish them apart? How do we know the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. How do you how do you how do you distinguish them? And for the last hundreds of years, Christians have struggled uh, with describing the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There is a distinction between the persons. There isn't a distinction between the essences. Because if there's a distinction in the essences, you don't have one divine being, you have three. And that's pluralism. That's polytheism. That's, that's heresy. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct in person. For instance, the Son is the Son. He is not the Father. Why? Because the Son is eternally generated from the Father. The Father is the Father because he does not he is not eternally generated from anything for anyone. It is the Father who communicates 
the divine essence to the Son. And he's done this in eternity. He hasn't done this in time. And because the Father has eternally communicated his divine nature to his Son, without division, without change, the Son shares the same nature as the Father. But they're still distinct in persons. The Son is the Son, and the Father is the Father. Take, take you and your father, for example, or you and your son, for example. Forget your eye color, forget your height, forget the weight, forget all that outward stuff. Let's say you and your father are identical in every way. How would you tell each other apart? How would we know that you're the son and your father is the father? Or how would you know that you're the father and your son is your son? You make that distinction by the relationship. You are the son because you're begotten of the father. Your father is your father because he's not begotten of you. You receive your nature from your father. That's what makes you his son. You have naturally generated from your father. You come from him. You receive your characteristics from your father. That's what makes you the son. And this is the same thing about the Son of God. The Son of God is distinct from His Father because He's the Son. He has eternally received His nature from His Father. Therefore, the Father's not the Son and the Son is not the Father. They are both divine in essence. They are both equal in substance. They both share the same glory and power. But because the Son receives his nature from the Father in eternity past, he's begotten of his Father. And that's how you tell them apart. By the relationship. Not by, not by the essence, not by the nature, by the relationship. Because the essence and the nature is the same. Where is eternal generation taught in Scripture? Where is this doctrine found in the Bible? Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. A beautiful passage about this relationship between the father and the son is found in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 25 through 31 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. The scripture says, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, 
rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. See that relationship between the father and the son? Before anything was created, the son was with the father. He was with him before time began. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. These three scriptures, Psalm 2-7, Proverbs 8-25-31, and Hebrews 1-3-5, teach that the Son of God, Jesus, is divine. He was begotten of the Father before the world began. So basically in eternity, because the creation of the world starts time. Every time the phrase before the foundation of the world or before the creation of the world is used, it's always referring to eternity, past. It's, it's, refer, it's referring to the time period before time began. And what's the time period before time began? Eternity passed. I'll tell you another example in scripture which describes the eternal generation of the Son. You ever, you ever wonder why Jesus is called the wisdom of God or the light of God or the word of God, the power of God? These, these phrases are uniquely Refer to Jesus. They, they uniquely describe Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus called the wisdom of God? Why is he called the word of God? I remember when I first got saved, and this is no lie, I, I became a Christian in 2005. And I asked the, the student minister of our church, why is Jesus called the word of God? And the student minister told me, Jesus is called the word of God because he is simply what God wants you to hear. And at first I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And I, then over the next, you know, 16 years as a Christian, I realized that not a very good answer. It's not a very good answer. The reason why Jesus is called the Word of God is because that imagery of him being the Word of God, the wisdom of God, the light of God, the power of God, that imagery is used to emphasize that the Son is essential to who God is and that he comes from God. Think about it. God cannot live separate from his Word. God cannot exist separately from his power. God cannot exist separately from the light, from wisdom, and, and so forth. God cannot exist separately from those things. 
if God existed separately from wisdom, he wouldn't be God. If God existed separately from power, he wouldn't be God. If God existed in darkness, he wouldn't be God. That's why the light of God cannot be separated from God's existence. And the reason why Jesus, the Son, is called the wisdom of God, the light of God, the power of God, and the word of God is because the Son has never lived separately from his Father. The Father has never existed without his Son. That's the reason why Jesus is called those things. It's describing his eternal generation. It's describing his union with the Father, that as long as the Father has existed, so has his wisdom and light and power and word. And Jesus has called those things because the Father has never existed separately without his Son. That's why. And that's beautiful. <laughs> what, a, what a perfect way for God to communicate his eternal relationship to his son by calling his son the wisdom of God and the light of God, the word of God, the power of God. Man. It just describes how the father's son cannot live and exist separately. They've always been together. Why is the eternal generation of the Son significant? Why is it necessary? Well, it's, it's critical for the deity of the Son, right? His eternal generation describes how he's divine, and it also describes how he's distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Uh, eternal generation explains how the Son is God, right? According to the Bible, according to Christian theology, the Son is of the same essence and the same substance with the Father. How can two persons be of the same substance and of the same essence? And the answer, eternal generation. Because the Father has eternally communicated His divine nature to His Son. And the Son receives that divine nature from His Father in eternity past. Therefore, the Son is uncreated. He is the same essence and of the same substance as his Father. So eternal generation describes the deity of the Son and the distinction from his Father, which is important for the Christian faith. Because if the Son is not, if the Son is not God, then he can't die on the cross for sins. He can't, he can't offer up a perfect sacrifice. And that's why eternal generation is important as Christ the mediator. Christ is the mediator between God and man. He offers that sacrifice. If the son ain't divine, that sacrifice is not perfect. And we're in trouble. Eternal generation also teaches how the son is not the father. It teaches how the son is distinct from the father. How do we know that Jesus isn't God's brother? Right? It's a good question. How do we know that Jesus isn't the Father's brother? How do we know that Jesus is his son? Because of eternal generation. That's how we know. 
a father's brother cannot be generated from the father. Think about that in human terms. My uncle is the brother of my father. Now, since he's the uncle, he can't be the son. And since he's not the son, he's not, etern- he's not generated from the father. That same logic applies to the son of God. We know that Jesus is the son and not the brother of the father because Jesus is eternally begotten of the father. I'm naturally begotten of my father. Therefore, I'm not my father's brother. I'm his son. So eternal generation describes the uniqueness of Christ, his deity, but also how he's distinct from the father. We know that the son is not the father. We know the son is not the mother. We know the son is not the brother. We know he's not the uncle. We know he's not the cousin. Why? Because he has been eternally generated of the father. Without eternal generation, you have a plurality of gods. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God. The Bible clearly teaches that the Son is divine. He's eternal. So if you don't have eternal generation, if you don't have the formula of why the Son is divine, if you take out that formula, all you have is another whole God. You wouldn't have a trinity. You have a trinities of gods. You wouldn't have one God in three persons. You'd have three gods, three separate beings. And may we never believe that. May that never be true. You know, we aren't the only people who struggle with the nature of the sun. I mentioned earlier, Arius and the early church, but many heresies, many confusions about the Son of God existed after the resurrection and after the time of the apostles. Uh, I'm, I'm not exaggerating this by no means, but every century after the death of the apostles had its own version of heresies and false teaching about Christ. Every, every century has been awful. We've had heresies, we've had confusions, we've had false teachings. But because of God's grace, because of God's wisdom and his will, the early church withstood these um, distorted views. And the early church produced beautiful and glorious Christological doctrines. And we owe a lot to those men and those women of the faith. They served us well. In the second century, a group of people called the Ebionites, that means the poor ones, they rejected Jesus' virgin birth. The Ebionites claimed that Jesus wasn't human. And if Jesus ain't human, how can he bleed? (laughs) And if Jesus can't bleed, how can his blood forgive you of sins? It's that simple. You deny Jesus' virgin birth, You deny his humanity. You deny the immaculate conception that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. You are in trouble. You can't be a Christian. Then in the third century, there was 
a, a particular false teaching that claimed Jesus was a regular man until some specific point in his life. Um, in the third century, a lot of people believed uh, that Jesus was a regular man until his baptism, until the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And once the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, that's when he became God. In the fourth century, the false teacher Apollinaris, he taught that Jesus had a human body, but a divine mind. Jesus had a human body, but he didn't have a human mind. Uh, In the fourth century, also, we talked earlier about Arius. He taught that Jesus was not a divine being, that he was a created being. In the fifth century, the false teacher Nestorius, he taught that Jesus had was two separate people. That during one part of his ministry, he was a man. But during another part of his ministry, he was God. And so Jesus kept flip-flopping back and forth. Uh, opposite of Nestorianism is monophysitism. Monophysitism teaches that Jesus was one person but the divine and human nature was mixed together. And because they were perfectly mixed together, it it produced this whole new different person. That during the ministry of Christ, by the end of his ministry, Jesus was a totally different person than the beginning. Because over time, those two natures, the divine and human, perfectly blended together to produce a whole new creature. Eutychus. He taught that um, the Trinity uh, was three separate gods, three separate natures. You ever heard the Trinity explained in terms of uh, God is like a man who is a father, husband, and son all at one time? Yeah, that's heresy. No, he's not. The problem with that analogy, God is like a father, son, and husband, is that it denies the three separate persons because the same the father who's a husband and a son is the same person. The Trinity is one being but three different persons. The Father is not like the Son. He's not like the Spirit. The Son is not like the Father, not the Spirit. And the, spot, and the Spirit is not the Son. He is not the Father. That's what that analogy teaches. The, a man who is a father, husband, and son is like the Trinity. No. Because in that scenario, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same person. And they're not. They're different persons. One being, same essence, same substance, but different in person. What about the Trinity is like H2O? Right? H2O can either be solid, liquid, or gas. That's a heresy. It's monophysitism. It's all false teaching. Stop with the analogies. The early church fathers went to great lengths to help us with Christology. We have the creeds. 
We have the confessions. Tested and true. Follow those things. I, 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 it drives me crazy when, when people say, no creed but Christ. First of all, that's a creed. Creeds and confessions are like, you're, you're driving down the road, you know those, those rails that are up? You know, when, like when you go by a bridge and the bridge has rails to keep you from going over the cliff? That's what creeds and confessions do. They keep you from going over the cliff. They keep you orthodox. They keep you from being a heretic. And that's why our church, we're confessional. We believe the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is the perfect summary of what the Bible teaches about important doctrines. 